joy, a real joy to say the least. And, you know, we've been focusing on heaven, but the reality of it all is, is that there is both reward and punishment that is eternal, that awaits us all. And it's rather daunting, for sure, and overwhelming, but nonetheless, we would be irresponsible not to be able to look at both. And today, we get a peek into a story that Jesus tells us that drives home with such clarity the real idea that what awaits us is immediate and forever. And it could be astounding or it could be really frightening. In the end, though, he does all that he can to make sure that every single... I mean, God is for us all. He didn't prepare the new heaven and the new earth for us not to inhabit it. It is God's will that none would come to that place of torment, but rather that all would repent and all be saved. That's God's will. It's why Jesus came. It's why he bled. It's why he died. It's why he made it known. And it's why he's arranged time and space so that you could have every opportunity to be able to know that. How great is our God? Let's pray together and we'll look at this fantastic and yet provocative story that Jesus tells us that brings us all into full view. Let's pray. Dear God, it is overwhelming, both in a great sense, but then also in a sober sense, to realize that what we experience now is a mere shadow and with a bit of perspective of having transcended this reality, it will also be a mere mist, a mere shadow, a mere breath in comparison to the beautiful eternity that you have prepared for us, our very destiny. Thank you, God, for loving us so dearly. Thank you, God, for what awaits us. Thank you, God, that at some point soon, sooner than we can imagine now, but in a mere breath, Len, we will see your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 So we're going to be looking in Luke 16. Before I jump there, though, a little bit of good news that I want to share. If you can go to the next slide. Holla! Come on! You know, we're always very excited when our, our high school students graduate and, and then even when our our 20-somethings graduate, but how hard is it to be able to complete that degree later in life? I mean, the sacrifices, the late nights, the discipline that it takes. Cornelius graduated with honors yesterday. Way to go, brother. Amen. And that was fun, and you know, some of us got together, and we had a, a bit of a feast that was just good times, great fellowship, and great celebration as it went on, and a little bit of a taste, too, of what it is that awaits us when we have this great and eternal feast with uh, Jesus and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, uh, all God's people gathered together. So if you can go to the next slide then, too. Over in Luke 16, we'll then begin to look at this story. There's no escaping that... The minute that we flatline, you know, when it goes from boop, 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 yeah. boop. And I'm 
I'm tone deaf, and I think that was pretty good, actually. But anyway, <laughs> it's my best song. It, it, the minute that that flat line begins, according to what Jesus brings home to us in this story, that very second that there's no longer a bouncing ball to follow, but just a flat line to, to um, look at, that very minute we enter into a new dimensional awareness of what our destiny will be, not for a moment, forever and ever. And the story that we're about to read is a bit of a morality tale that Jesus tells us, and it's not a foreign idea to his first century audience. And as a matter of fact, we have lots of movies, we have lots of morality tales that play like this. One fellow has everything in this present life, but he's callous to the needs of others, falling into some sort of a, 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 a coma of, um, of of carelessness and complacency, riches having kind of blinded you. And then there's the, the poor guy who has nothing. But then with death comes the grand reversal of all things. The Egyptians had a story at this time exactly like this. There's a story about a man who was finely dressed in royal linen and next to him was a poor man, invalid, on a mat. Uh, the Jews also had a, a story at this very same time, too, and many, actually, a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a good morality tale, but it was a story of a very rich tax collector, and, in uh, contrast to him, would have been a poor Bible teacher. And in both of these stories, in all of these stories, in death is a great reversal. But in all of these stories, just like in our movies today, even when this great reversal occurs, the drama continues. Because in this drama is then everybody who's suddenly realized, oh, now I get it. I lived my life so horribly. Is there a, a chance again? Ebenezer Scrooge-esque type idea here. Give me another chance. How about it, God? Just give me another chance. And in all of these morality tales, there is another chance. Now here's what's interesting. In this one that Jesus gives us, once the flat line begins, it's set. There is no more chance. As a matter of fact, what Jesus tells us is we've had more than enough chances. And so for us to presume upon his kindness and riches of his glorious patience is to set ourselves up for a rather rude awakening when we enter into the awareness of, of that dimensional reality that comes our way. So with that in mind, Know that there's an audience that's used to these stories and used to hearing, okay, but how did it kind of, you know, turn around one more time in the end? Here's the story, starting in verse 19 of, of chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. That's a sign, by the way, in the first century. And it, it, as I come upon words that maybe we wouldn't appreciate that would pop in a first century audience, I'll stop on those, which will happen quite a bit in the very beginning here. But, but purple, that's a, a special little... Uh, uh, kind of oyster that would be able to secrete a color that would allow things to be dyed purple. Expensive. My best estimate trying to look at some of the early documents on this is it would take you a thousand days of regular wages to buy just one of these garments dyed in purple. So a thousand days at regular wages. And he was also dressed in fine linen. Linen is kind of your undergarments. So not only did he have it kind of going on with his robes and everything, but his underwear was awesome. <laughs> and he lived in luxury every day. More literally is the idea that he feasted 
sumptuously every day. Big party, big feast every day. And at his gate, told you I would stop often, think, oh, gate, I know what gate means. Well, no, in the first century, there were different words for gate. And the word that was used for this gate is the same one that Luke uses when he's talking about magnificent, overwhelming gates through which you might enter. So, for example, the temple gate called beautiful is the same word that is used for gate here. The gates to cities like Damascus that Luke uses is the same word for gate used here. It's not just some ordinary domestic, you got a a, a nice sort of house gate, and isn't that a nice little picket fence gate? No, this is, I mean, MTV Cribs times 100 gate that this guy has in his house. So if we're thinking or seeing this through the eyes of the first century audience, they're hearing words that would give this picture before them of, wow, this dude had it going on. But at this gate was laid, implying that he was in such a state that he needed to be carried and placed there. At this gate was laid a beggar. It's the poorest of all poor terms, named Lazarus. And Lazarus is a contraction of Eliezer. And we, we actually probably know this word a bit better than you think. El, in Hebrew, is always God. El Shaddai, Elohim. And Azer is a word that probably some of your sisters know. What's that mean? Exactly. And so his name means God helps. And this will bear itself out as the story continues. So at his, at his gate was a beggar who, by the way, was named God is going to help me. And he was covered with sores. These would be ulcerated external sores, abscesses. It would be a a, a rather pitiful condition that he would be in. And he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So to Jewish ears, having to beg for food and to be filled with sores puts him in a place where rabbinical teaching at the time said three things, if inflicted upon a man, gave him no life at all. And he fulfills two of these things, as far as we know. The three things that a first century rabbi would say gives you no life at all is, number one, if your body is inflicted with sores, these these ulcerated sores. Number two, if you have to beg for food. And number three, if you're inflicted with an overbearing wife. That reaction's on you. (laughs) But this man, I don't know if he was three for three or not, but he is definitely two for three in this situation. And he's, he's depicted in the eyes of a Jewish audience seeing him as, wow, that is no life even at all. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is, this is not some kind of even cute Maggie or Toby type dog that's coming up to, to this guy. There's nothing cute about this dog. The, the word that's being used here for dog, Kuon, is street rat nasty wild dog. All, all dogs, by the way, in the Bible are like rats for the most part. So, I mean, you can put your own idea of dog back into it, but that's their view. And so this man is so helpless, he can't even fend off the wild street dogs that come up to him. And what are they doing? They're not comforting him by licking him. It's, it's more akin to the curse 
that is told to Jezebel when she steals the garden away from Naboth. And they said, just as the dogs licked up her blood, and he's talking to Ahab, so he will lick up your blood as well. It's that kind of a scene. This is a man with no life at all, laid at this gate, begging for food, hoping for the food that would fall from the table. That food, by the way, would have been at a big sumptuous feast. You didn't have utensils as we have them today. Your hands would get much dirtier than, than they would today. And so what do you do when your hands are getting dirty? The tradition was is that you would use bread from the meal and the bread you would use to kind of sop up the gravies or whatever dirt that might have gotten on your hands. And then you would take that bread and throw it under the table. And they called that bread finger towel bread, finger towel bread. And, and so it's interesting because this will play in later in the story that all this man wanted was kind of the bread that fell from your fingers that would then just be thrown out anyway. But he didn't even get that. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Then the time came, and now look at the reversal as it comes. Just in, in, a, in a turn of a phrase, the time came, and everything's going to be different just with those words. And for us, it's going to be different in just that quick of an instant as well. Whether it's in 12 minutes from now, if Jesus returns, or 12 years from now, if your health takes an odd turn. Either way, the minute that the boop comes, your eyes are opened to the reality of what's coming your way, as it is right here now for these two men. The time came when the beggar died, that being Lazarus, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The older translations use the word bosom. It's the idea that you are... Uh, in front of Lazarus at a great feast. In the first century, if you bellied up to the table, you didn't do so in a chair. They didn't, they didn't sit around a, a, a feast with chairs as we have them. They reclined. There would be some sort of cushioning or pillows, and you'd be lying on your side. Normally, you'd be lying on your, on your left side, and then you'd eat with your, with your right hand. So even as we sing songs about when we enter that land, you know, we're going we're gonna to sit at the welcome table. We're going to feast on milk and honey. Well, we're probably not singing that with historic accuracy, right? It would probably be more, if we were to really sing it you know, the right way, we'd have to say, going to recline at the welcome table, going to feast on milk and honey, but we wouldn't have utensils, so we'd be just using our hands, of course, too. And then throwing the finger towel bread underneath us as we eat. That's a lot, right, to, to redo the song. However, but, but by using the phrase Abraham's bosom is a, a very interesting term because it means that in, Abraham is, is here seated at this big table and then in front of him is this man who had no life at all. And the time came, boom, and in the time came, in that phrase, he goes from beggar, no life at all to suddenly, hey, I'm hanging with Abraham. Wow, how did this happen? I am in the seat of honor with Abraham. And if you're seated at Abraham's bosom, that means that Abraham is facing you and the main person that he would have conversation with would then be you. And so you're like, well, hey, well, why, why, yes, Abraham, I am pretty fired up to be here. Yeah, well, okay, sure, I'll pass it to you. So I, I mean, you're like, wow, Abraham is talking to me. How cool is that? And by the way, the idea that one is in heaven or one is in hell or one is in paradise or one is in Hades based on whether they had money or not is completely blown up, if that's the idea that anybody takes away from this, by the fact that Abraham is suddenly in this story in paradise. Why? Because by most accounts, the richest man on the face of the earth when he died was Abraham. 
So you can't make this some sort of an economic uh, morality play that's going on here. This, the, the issue of why they end up in either place is told later in the story, by the way. So anyway, there he is at this great, amazing banquet. Now for us, I don't think we get this beautiful picture of heaven based on a banquet sometimes. You know, we might be thinking, oh man, that's going to be incredible. Oh, but you know what? I'm going to have to like, you know, put into my fitness pal how many calories this meal is. And I, you know, can I really afford that? I mean, we've gotten to a place where we don't long for the next meal. And we really have come to a place where we sort of sense that we have a bit of heaven here on earth in a lot of very physical ways that dull us into a complacency that doesn't allow us to be how God made us, thirsting as a deer pants for water, Psalm 42. So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. But, again, all that we have can knock the edge off of the beauty of what it is to have the depth of desire for God. This man, this beggar, this Lazarus, this, this invalid, this disabled man is now dancing in heaven and feasting at Abraham's side, having beautiful, deep conversation rather than being callously overlooked by those that go by him who are of such seeming importance through this beautiful gate that, that simply ignore him. Now, the man of greatest importance to that audience, to that Jewish audience, Abraham himself, has got his ear and is welcoming him in to eternal glory. The rich man also died. And in, in that phrase, when he dies and is buried, and in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Hades is the 2011 translation of the NIV. The, the 84, 1984 translation had hell. It's, it's sometimes confusing, but it does say in Revelation 21 that death and Hades will be thrown into hell, the fiery lake of burning sulfur. So they're not exactly the same place. They equate to some of the same things, but to a, a general secular audience, Hades didn't just mean place of torment. Hades just meant the place where the dead went in, in some sort of a soul state. And, and that would be Greek culture, Jewish culture, Roman culture, either way. They all viewed Hades as that place. Jesus kind of, you know, says it a bit in that way too. Uh, I think mm, we're, we're, he, he talks about just as the son of man will be in, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, so the son of man will be in the belly of the earth three days. And that idea of being in the belly of the earth is the idea of Hades, this, this place of the, of, of the dead. And so it may be, if we're going to put all the pieces together in this story, that this place of the dead, Hades, had two sides to it, separated by a great chasm. The, the, the place of, of paradise and the place of torment. No offense to all of you all. But there, there was this great chasm and it was fixed. And if you wanted to go from there to there, you could not. If you wanted to go from there to there, you could not, as Abraham is going to share in just a moment. But the word for torment here, too, is a really, I mean, really intense word. It's, a, it's quite a word study. It, it sends shivers, actually, down your, your spine when you realize this is a word that was used of the most intense torture inflicted upon criminals trying to get them to be able to confess to their crime. Or it's the most kind of highest degree of, of, of torture that you could bring upon a criminal for the crime that he has committed. And this is then brought upon him day and night forever and ever, according to Revelation. 
So, stark contrast, to say the least, and whoop, huge reversal between where they were a moment ago and where they are now, just with the phrase, and the time came. So in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up. He looked up is often a phrase in the Bible equated with, you suddenly get it. And, and of course, you know, the title here is, you're going to get it. At some point in time, we're all going to get it. We're all going to get it, meaning judgment. We're all going to get it, meaning heaven or hell. We're all going to get it, too, meaning that we will become keenly aware of everything that God has promised. And in that moment, we will then say, whoa, I'm so glad I paid attention to that Bible. Whew, praise God. Or if not, the greatest regret would be, oh, my God. Oh, I had this with such clarity in front of me. I had people grabbing, beseeching me to pay heed to this. And I thought, ah, I'll have time. Ah, I'll, I'll bring it from the back burner. When, when it's, you know, let me, let me, I'm young. Let me live a little. Then I'll take a look at this. Oh, my goodness. This is a story that's meant to bust that idea up and out of your consciousness. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. There's no more pity. Luke has already addressed this issue. You'll say to me, but we had Abraham as our father. Luke 8, Luke 3, verse uh, 8, where John the Baptist says, don't come to me and say you have Abraham as your father. If I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. But instead, every tree that does not produce the good fruit of repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Grand reversal. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to there to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. You know, what's interesting is that the rich man is painfully aware of where he is and where Lazarus is. But Lazarus seems to not be aware at all. I don't know if that has a deeper theological consequence, but it's maybe worth noting as you take a look at this story. But once he gets it, once everything becomes in full view, there's one thing that we're all going to want if we end up in the place of torment. That one thing that we would want is just one drop of heaven. If I could just have relief for one moment. Let's kind of flip this around for a second. And, and let's pretend though, because you know, we've been setting our mind on heaven. We've been praying about heaven. We've been asking questions about heaven. We've been answering questions about heaven. We have been pontificating. We've been meditating all on heaven. But what if, what if, rather than just speculating about heaven, what if, we'll use our imagination here, one of us drew the long straw and we were able to go to heaven for just a taste. One taste of heaven. And, and there you are. I mean, you, you, you really experience it all. You see the face of God and you live. And, and you know, as Alcorn says in his book, and you wonder, had I ever lived before? 
having experienced that. And there you are, seeing the one who made you for his very special purposes in the state in which you were always meant to be made and in the very place that he had always destined for you to be, surrounded by all the joy and scenes of bliss forever new, rising in succession to your view, that are all there, and you drink it all in and experience it. And you get to do that. All right, let's pretend... Let's pretend one of us did that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, all right, Ross, stand up, please. There you go. Thank you. Let's pretend, see how, how, how well his imagination works. Ross, this has happened, right? It's a Scooby-Doo illusion. You wouldn't know about that. But anyway, and you've, you've come back, as well as Wayne's World. You come back, and, and here you are. Whoop, back he comes. What do you have to say to us? Church, <laughs> I've returned from heaven. It is awesome, and you I have some stories for you. I talked to Jesus, and I asked him, I said, Jesus, can my brother do it? Will he be there? He told me, you know what he can. Come on. He'll be there. I said, God, will the rest of my family be there? He said, they will. They will run. Ross, what are you going to tell your like friends at school when you see them? Said, you know what? You guys got to get your act together. All you guys can make it. You can. I recline at the welcome table. And I ain't that food. Come on. Yeah. Imagine you say, yeah, I know, I really do need to like get it together for Jesus, but I, I don't know, I've got these aches, these pains, these bills, these issues, my kids. I mean, imagine going to lunch with Ross and complaining about some of that. How do you think your lunch conversation with him would go? I think he would say, listen to you for a second, and he'd be like, Shut up! <laughs> like that's all that pales drops into insignificance. Yeah. Shut up! Do you, what is coming our way is so astounding. Let's, I mean, just let's get it together. It's that big a deal, and it's all true. It's all true, and it's all coming our way. And if 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 we could only get it. Get it. I mean, that's what this month has been about, that we could really get that, get that to ourselves, that this is God's purpose. It's why he's arranged all things. It's why Jesus died. It's why all creation groans for recreation. It's, it's all so that we, it's all for us to be able to experience it forever and ever with joy. So reading on though, but Abraham replied, son, remember in your lifetime, you received good things. Lazarus bad. Now he's comforted here and you are in agony and the gulf down verse 27. He answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family 
For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So this man gets it, and the first thing that he wants is just a tiny bit of relief and a tiny taste of heaven. But what's the second thing that he wants once he gets it, once he, in a sense, repents but too late? The very thing that he wants is for those that he loves so dearly to be able to be with God, to see the face of God, to be with Jesus. Because he now knows the greatest agony of all agonies, even if we can't appreciate it fully. That great agony is mentioned. I'm going to read this to you from Paul's writings. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified on his holy people and be marveled at among those who have believed. And then he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, this includes you because you listened to our testimony. The very thing that Abraham is saying here is that, you know what? They've got the testimony. They've got the Bible. They've got the words of the prophets. They've got the words of Moses. Your five brothers have got all that they need. And for you to kind of act like, yeah, but we're special. We, we need a little something extra, a little lanyap, you know, in our, in our family. And what we need is a special message from you, God. If we ever harbor a thought like that, it's bordering on supreme arrogance. Jesus has died for us. And it's been recorded with such veracity and reliability that we've got it right here. It ought to cause us. This story really does. As I try to think, what, what is the effect on my life? This story makes me tremble when I realize I have the word of God, the key to what will either be everlasting amazement or everlasting regret. This man ended up in regret because he had the Bible and he decided out of a callous disregard to turn a blind eye to these very words that were coming his way. Any of you, as you sit here now, it's, it's going to happen. We're all going to get it. We're all going to stand there. And it is going to have a consequence that is irreversible and eternal. But God is for you. He doesn't want any one of us to be in that place of regret. He wants nothing but jubilation. This guy... Wants that for his brothers now, but it's all based on regret. But, and what is it that he, that he says? If they don't repent, they will repent if something bigger can happen. He realizes at this point 
the difference between him and Lazarus was that one repented and the other one didn't. And the difference between his brothers being able to be there or not is whether they repent or not. And for all of us, as we, we sit here now, we need to make sure that we have a mindset, a repentance, that is now that we live our lives through the perspective of the kingdom of God. That is metanoia. That is repentance. With joy to embrace what it is that God has made clear to us. Is the scales fall from our eyes and repentance is ours. And we get it and we know it. And who are we that he would have such mercy on us to make such grand things known to us? And we do. We're out without excuse. But we don't need excuse anymore. Because we know and we now march triumphantly towards this beautiful future that is ours. But now that we've gotten it, we also have to realize that everyone's going to get it. One way or another, everyone's going to get it. Deb and I were on a prayer walk the other day and it was so beautiful going through Riverview Farm Park and seeing God's creation, imagining it all recreated as it groans for rebirth, what it will really look like and what it will be like for us to be able to live there, enjoy that. But then I also brought to mind, whoa, five brothers, five friends, five neighbors, five co-workers. Who are those five in your life? You don't need to have a couple minute trip to heaven as Ross played out for us. We believe. We've been redeemed. We know that we've been redeemed for heaven itself. For the new earth, the new heaven. Life with Jesus. So who are your five? Who are your five that with the same gusto that Ross has, that we'd come back and every lunch would be different, every interaction would be different? Like, this stuff is real. It's all true. It's coming our way. Please, let's talk. Let's talk. I'm not doing this out of judgment. I'm doing this out of love. I care deeply. It's all true. Just because the world is so, you know, kind of postmodern and relativistic, and if anybody claims to know truth, it's all condemned. I got to bust through all that right now. I know that by me grabbing you and saying, please, let's look at this, that it will have a negative reaction. But I don't care because it's worth it. That was this man's reality at this moment. Whatever it takes, if somebody can come on out from the dead, go get them and shake them loose, please do so. But if we really believe, I think this is part of what is a natural response to belief. 2 Corinthians 5 says, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. The old is gone, the new has come, all this is from God. But then what is the, the response to that that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5? And so now, now we are ambassadors for Christ. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Please be reconciled to God. Ross, with that experience in the lunchroom, is going to be sitting down and be like, I implore you on Christ's behalf. And they say, what does implore mean? Don't worry about that. But I'm trying to get your attention on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Let's get... Well, then, you know, maybe if God shows me something, no, he's not going to. He's promised he's not going to. This is what you've got right here. He's given you the word of God. It's a wicked generation that asks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, Jesus says. Because Jonah went to Nineveh and at the preaching of Jonah, Nineveh repented. And the men of Nineveh will stand in judgment with all of us. 
Because they repented at the preaching of, of Jonah and something greater than Jonah is here for us. We've got all that we need. We've gotten what it is that we need to get. And now there's one more thing that we need to do before Christ returns. We need to go give what we've got. Who are your five? Let's go.